Hello and welcome to What Goes Around podcast. We've got a fab show for you today. And my name is Simon Murtagh. My name is Anne Frankenstein. And today we are celebrating unexpected happiness in the form of Gary Newman. So that's a lovely little story that we're going to squeeze into a very packed show today because after that, Anne has got something incredible to tell you about. A new form of music. More joy. As if I couldn't love musicals any more than I already do, I discovered via an incredible documentary recently a whole new kind of musical and we're going to be digging in with uh, the creators of that brilliant documentary and telling you more about the wonderful world of industrial musicals. Yes, indeed. It's a fabulous world that I never knew existed. And our special guest this week is the hilarious, brilliant and charming Joe Caulfield. Stand-up comedian, writer, broadcaster, all-round brilliant Bonverber. We loved her so much. She is a tremendous interview and picks out some great tunes. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy this show. I think it's time we did that thing, Anne. I think it's time. Should we do the thing? Let's do this thing. Launch that pod. You got this. Eamon Murder, the magic question I have for you today. I think you know what's coming. What goes around? Well, I know we've all had a very hard time over the last year or whatever, so I'm going to bring us some darn good news. Something that makes you happy, puts a smile on your face, and makes you think, maybe my days as a wild, frontier-running, crazy-legged dancer, groover, man about town aren't over just yet. Thank God for that. Come on, fill me in. I know, I know. No, a little ray of hope this week, because amazingly... After 35 years, 35 years, Gary Newman is at number two in the charts. Stop it. With what what song? He's got a new album out called Intruder. And amazingly, without any real kind of massive record company push or anything, his fan base is just kind of... uh, The last album did quite well. Um, and it kind of he's kind of got like a new I think he did he got involved with Nine Inch Nails and, and the kind of new metal scene a little bit a few years ago and they've taken to him and um, his last album did a lot better than it had done for ages but this one highest chart position in 35 years and there are just some charming videos of a 63 year old man which is what Gary Newman is now just almost on the point of tears with gratitude and you know, ludicrously excited about the whole prospect of the of being, you know, being a pop star again. Which I guess he is now because he's he's you know second top of the pops. That's amazing. I mean, that is not what I was. I wasn't expecting the Gary Newman angle when you. I know. I know. I know. Gave that, that big uh, that big intro there. But I'm thrilled well, for you, and I'm thrilled for Gary and the world. I, I, he he does. He's one of those people who just has this enduring sort of fan base who just really, really love him, and he's sort of uncompromising in his whole. I mean, he looks the same, doesn't he? His aesthetic, yeah, his whole attitude yeah. is the same. I love that. Yeah, and I think it's it, what's really nice is that obviously he's got his fan base, which he's always had. But it must have been a really strange trip for him, you know, uh, because obviously he was, uh, you know down in the park and all those amazing records cars and all they were huge worldwide smashes and then he was like the biggest thing ever 
And then there was this very, very long, slow decline <laughs> into obscurity <laughs> to the point where, like, by the mid 90s, you know, I, I don't think he could he could buy a record sale. So it looked like it was all over for him. Now, this happens to lots of pop stars. And that's fair enough. That's just the way the world is. I'm, I'm not going to shed too many tears over it. There's something really lovely about the fact of how he's kind of quietly garnered some new fans and kept his old ones. And as you say, just kept his same aesthetic. And here he is just back in the charts, back in the top five after all this time. And what's really lovely about it is he is absolutely stoked. There's no kind of like, oh, well, yeah, it's good to be back. You know, it's, it's like, I can't believe it, mate. He's like <laughs> tears welling in his eyes. It's such a sweet thing to watch. We'll put the um, put a link to a couple of the interviews he did uh, uh, in the uh, show description, because honestly, it's a real heartwarming thing. I loved it. That does sound lovely. Do you know what? That makes me excited because it makes me feel like the past is coming back. I feel much more comfortable <laughs> in the past. I don't like all this future business. If Gary Newman is back in the charts, then that just that 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 makes me feel like maybe we're returning to a a time and a and a world that I'm much more comfortable with. I find that really an odd dichotomy because <laughs> Gary Newman is a futurist. You know, <laughs> his whole album is about like the future world and how you know a post-water world where you know everything's gone deserty and global warming and all that sort of stuff. But he's always been looking into the future. He's always been the robot from from next year. So yeah, like an '80s vision of the future is just so much cooler than <laughs> what the future actually looks like. Don't you think that's well, true? Like hackers and all. I mean, even an early yeah. '90s vision of the future is better than the fucking pandemic. Yeah. Like garbage fire that we're living in right now. Sorry to bring. I know this is a positive. I know that thing you're bringing this to me. is so on brand for you, isn't it? I bring the love, <laughs> you throw the mud, honestly. But I know what you mean, I know what you mean. And uh, certainly um, when I was a youth growing up, uh, we looked to the future like it was going to be a lot better than it actually has mm. turned out, mm. no doubt. I mean, uh, more lame. I was just hoping for more silver, silver <laughs> lame. I wanted the hoverboard, damn it. Where's my hoverboard? Yeah, I know, I know. Well, they have those motorized scooters That's now, true. but they're just fucking dark mobiles. I know, and also, you know, when you when you thought about the dream of the future and the hoverboards and things like that, you didn't think you'd be fucking jumping out of the way on your pavement as you <laughs> wandered <laughs> yeah, your way exactly. to the shops. <laughs> that, is, that isn't the vision. I, I imagined me on the hoverboard, not me scuttling out of the way with a bad knee, you know? Yeah, we got old. That's the problem. But anyway, kudos to Gary. Exactly. That's a bit of good news. Thank you for that. We're not old if Gary's not old. 63, number two in the pop charts. That puts a smile on my face, even if he is an old Tory. (laughs) Oh, God, don't watch after ruining. Attention, please. Settle back and listen. Let's reduce the din. Your A.B. Dick Company pacemaker sales meeting is about to begin. So we have with us today David Wisenant and Steve Young, who put together a documentary, uh, which myself and Eamon watched recently, about uh, a section of music, and this so rarely happens, a section of music that we were completely unaware of before watching this documentary called Industrial Musicals. And I say this as a mu- not just a music nerd, but a huge fan of musicals in general. I cannot believe that this world was unknown to me before I saw their brilliant documentary, Bathtubs Over Broadway. Steve is the protagonist in the documentary. 
a comedy writer and record collector. And David is the director. And um, I guess, first off, it would be great if you could describe what industrial musicals are, because I imagine not many people listening are familiar with that term either. Take it away, Steve. This is what I was born to do, is to explain this genre to the world. Uh, On the surface, very much like a Broadway musical, but they were created only for private audiences of people within corporations like Ford or General Electric or Coca-Cola, only to entertain and uplift people within the company. So it was like a whole subterranean world of Broadway musicals that were never going to be on Broadway and the public knew nothing about them because you could not see them unless you were in the company. And I only learned about it accidentally because I was collecting strange records for use on the David Letterman show and we were making fun of weird, unintentionally funny records and I started finding the souvenir record albums from these productions. And that's what uh, got me started on my uh, collecting journey, which Deva illustrated so beautifully in the film. I have to say, when I was watching the show, because, um, uh, again, like Anne, I've been collecting records since I was knee-high to a grasshopper and um, into all sorts of things. And this was a, a whole area that I just knew nothing about at all. And what I, what I found interesting is I don't really like um, when people look at records ironically most of the time. I find it, you know, it doesn't... I'm not into comedy records or anything like that. But what I liked about your little journey was that you started off kind of looking for items of fun to sort of generally take the mickey out of and some crazy covers and stuff but then you sort of fell in love with the monster didn't you and i wonder what point did that that sort of penny drop you thought i'm not just laughing at this anymore i love it so i was collecting all these records really just to make fun of on this late night tv show but then i would listen to these songs about selling diesel engines or insurance and think my god these are very elaborately produced some really talented people must have worked on this. I mean, it's obviously insane, but gee, I can't get these songs out of my mind. I would be just walking around singing about uh, the triumphs and tragedies of uh, selling Plymouths or tractors or light bulbs. And I just thought, how much of this is there? And why is it so good? My bathroom, my bathroom, is a private kind of place very special kind of place the only place where i can stay making faces at my face my bathroom and of course you came i mean you kind of entered this world and you found out that there were like covertly quite a lot of other interesting people sort of bidding against you on eBay. I mentioned, you know, Jello Biafra pops up in the documentary as a collector of this music as well. So like, did it feel like you had discovered this sort of genre? But I would like to hear uh, Deva's perspective on this because she kind of mirrors the audience in that she had to learn about this from uh, basically never having heard about it before and then suddenly being immersed in it and trying to get her her own mind about around what it was. 
I didn't, I didn't know anything about this or care about it at all. I didn't even like Broadway before this movie. It was, it was actually what you mentioned before, like the fact that he started to look at it with love. That's what pulled me in and that he started to meet these people that made these things and they became his friends. That's, and you know, he became emotionally involved with their lives too. That's what really sucked me in. But then also that we got to go meet Jello Biafra and Don Bowles. <laughs> I mean, that was amazing. And they were, I mean, oh, th those were some of my favorite scenes because it was just like, we were kind of hanging on for dear life. Like, well, I don't know what's going to happen in this scene, but let's, let's go. Cause this is too fun. Well, this is the thing that, that's so, and I don't, I don't want to have any spoilers, but like it all culminates in this incredible final scene. Which I'm not going to lie, my, you know, I got a little yeah. bit teary at. I mean, I got a little <laughs> bit teary towards the end of the documentary anyway, because it's just a beautiful story. But like, it's sort of uh, this, it's kind of this voyage of discovery, really. So it's got this beautiful narrative, you know, as Steve goes along and sort of meets the people who, who created this music. I mean, can you talk to us a little bit about who you met and what you discovered about the genre along the way? Yeah, it was, well, some of the, the people Steve met back in the 90s when he first started um, re uh, collecting these records, but he hadn't met some of them in person before. So uh, like Hank Beebe, he, he'd met him in the 90s, but he'd never been up to his house. So that was a, um, that was a fun trip. And then Sid Siegel, uh, who composed The Bathrooms Are Coming, he, Steve uh, wasn't even sure he was alive. So that was, that was really the biggest uh, meetup for us was that Steve discovered that he was alive and uh, we went to visit him outside of Chicago and had so much fun. I mean, you know, they were, as you can see in the movie, they're, they're singing together and Sid still remembers the piano. He's, what was he, how old was he when we got to him, Steve? Uh, I think he was, just about 87, wow. 86, 87. And like everybody else that I found along the way, they were certain that this chapter of their lives was so hidden, was so locked away from any version of public understanding. They were s stunned that somebody was finding them and asking them about this. And they had <laughs> made this deal with the devil in a way that, okay, I will be well paid to do this work and it may be actually excellent, fantastic work, but what I have to accept is that no one's ever going to know about it or understand it. <laughs> it's going to play in front of uh, 300 floor tile salesmen once in 1967 and then be gone. Yeah, Sid and Hank, just late in life for them to have this surprise pop up. We're going to celebrate your work and find out about this secret uh, world of showbiz you were in. Mm. I have to say, David, um, watching the film, it was really nice that um, rather than kind of, I mean, it could have been a very different film, it could have been the kind of film where you were kind of looking in and maybe sneering a little bit at this weirdness, do you know what I mean? And actually what you did with the film was um, jump in with both feet and actually, you know, bring some of that musical magic to the screen and actually treat treat it like the art it is and, and give it a really nice sort of warm platform really for people to discover because um yeah the ending as as Anne mentioned is is really wholesome and and you know seeing great punk rockers of the past jump around <laughs> to that sort of thing was a real treat 
Thank you. Yeah, it was um, difficult sometimes to get people to talk to us um, at first because they thought we were going to be making fun of them. Mm. And especially, you know, oh, here's this guy from Letterman. And, you know, was, what is this exactly? So uh, once we won them over, then it was pretty easy to get them to participate in the final the final scene there. Um, mm. And that felt like such a weird, wonderful reunion to have everybody come together in that way. Touch and they'll open wide. Touch everything inside is handy, convenient, like books on a shelf. One little touch and it revolves itself. Touch everything's at hand. Presumably, I mean, the the, um, the film, like you said, is called Bathtubs Over Broadway, which is on Netflix um, in the UK. So anyone listening to this can... Uh, can go and and watch it online but talking about the music itself like I say I presume it's going to be a new concept to most people listening so let's take the bathrooms are coming as an example Um, you know that's the 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 um, the show that the documentary is named after how would you describe that musical and what it sounds like and um, what's so appealing about it to a sort of layman who's who's listening the bathrooms are coming such a blatantly improbable premise for a musical project. Let's celebrate the latest advances in bathroom fixtures like sinks and showers and toilets because we have to get the plumbing industry and all the distributors and dealers fired up about the new American Standard products. What planet can this possibly have existed on? Apparently our planet, but I I still could not believe it. And so that was really what kind of powered this was this just seems so wrong that it's right and it's beautiful and weird and great and these um these shows they i mean they weren't a flash in the pan really were they i mean it's it's tempting to think oh they did a few shows and that was it but th- there was decades worth of this stuff wasn't there yeah that emerged slowly uh deva i know you were uh startled by the scope of this as as most people are yeah it was like the 50s through the 80s even into the 90s in some cases uh, there were some pharmaceutical shows that we found probably the peak was mid 60s but there must have been some um amazing cultural movements through this sort of music because obviously it starts off with the classic Broadway musical but you go right through the the, the tail end of the 60s and the psychedelic age and then into the 70s and then even into the 80s I mean did we get as far as like a, a rap version like a Hamilton style <laughs> sell me some sprockets yes really oh yeah yeah. god i love this (laughs) yeah they i mean there was there were disco musicals those i love the disco ones Um, oh they were always slightly behind the times i think they had to you know the they were still pretty conservative overall but yeah the uh, some of the hip-hop ones are pretty pretty hard to watch (laughs) (laughs) i need to hear this it's crazy i was a comedy writer looking for cheap jokes to put onto television and now it just opened up into this endless landscape of music and sociology and all this other stuff. Give us some of your favorite subjects for these kind of musicals. Bowling. Oh bowling yeah, bowling. Uh, cafeteria steam tray tables, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> car key blanks, uh, bearings, uh, floor tile, insulation, fertilizer. Yeah, the tractor ones are really great. I'm hoping that the um, the fertilizer one was just called fertilizer with an exclamation mark, like Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, see, you have a gift <laughs> that has not been properly utilized so far. You have a bright future in this field. I'm going to write that, the Anne Frankenstein musical as soon as we're done with this. Oh, interview. my God, I don't. I think I die of pleasure. Thank you so much for bringing it to our attention. And we strongly advise everyone over here in the UK to search Netflix for bathtubs over Broadway. A lot of the time when I say, oh, watch this music documentary, I have to say to people, it doesn't matter if you're not into Neil Young, or it doesn't matter if you haven't listened to the punk scene or anything like that. With this, listen, it really doesn't matter. No one has any idea what's going on. It's a great <laughs> watch. <laughs> right. But you'll learn, that's the point. And David Wisland and Steve Young, thank you so, so much for, like Eamon said, bringing this music to us. And thank you so much for chatting to us today on the podcast. Thank you for spreading wow. the word and for having yes, us our on. Pleasure. It was great. <laughs> Farewell, you pacemakers, farewell to thee. Good luck to each one of you from A.B. Dick Company. May the sound of selling ring in your ear. Good luck to every one of you. What we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. Sharing her phonographic memories with us this week is writer and comedian Joe Caulfield. Joe has a stellar reputation as one of the finest stand-up comedians in the business, and as a writer and performer, she has ticked every single box on the comedy bingo card, appearing on and writing for award-winning shows like So Graham Norton, Have I Got News For You, Never Mind The Buzzcocks, Mock The Week, Argumental, and her own critically acclaimed Radio 4 series, It's That Joe Caulfield Again. Away from the comedy, Joe has always been a passionate music lover, and we are delighted to have her on the show today to discuss her musical memories. Hello, Joe. Hello. How nice to have you on. What a joy. That was a lovely intro because there was nothing there that annoyed me at all. Normally, there's something that irritates me. <laughs> oh, that's all good. Yeah. Well, today perfect. is a good day. I'm just going to put my AK away. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, the giveaway is when someone starts laughing halfway through us reading their intro. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can hear the derision. <laughs> oh, no, what have With I done? With me, it's more often like it's some, some things seem a long time ago. I'm like, oh, God, I did do that. <laughs> it's more <laughs> just remembering, oh, yeah, a reminder of things. <laughs> I think everything seems like a long time ago now yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> even if it was just a year ago i noticed so graham norton was voted the nation's favorite tv show ever or favorite channel 4 tv show ever on one of these roundup mm. programs at christmas did you catch that no no i didn't you no. didn't no it was like it was quite a um, quite a big show on channel 4 they were counting down the, the nation's favorite programs and so graham norton was uh was at number one i have very fond oh, memories wow. of watching that program oh. as well and also, I think people forget, because I worked on it from the pilot, mm. that at the time it was groundbreaking. 
Oh, yeah. Um, was, because uh, the only brilliant. sort of gay people on TV, the, all the men were very, oh, it's just showbiz gay. Mm. You mm. know, that that's always what Graham said. He go, you know, he was, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this, but Graham would oh, yeah, say, Graham. Um, I hope they know that it's, you know, I'm not John Inman, I do fuck men. <laughs> <laughs> and he was the first person who would actually talk open, you know, about having relationships. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm, you know, camp is yeah. funny. It was yeah. like, no, I'm a gay man living a gay life. Yeah. And uh, and also at the beginning and also that sensibility of the sort of kitchen things that he would like. And also because he wasn't famous, we couldn't get like high profile guests. So that's why we had people like uh, the mother from the Waltons and people yeah. that Graham had liked as children. <laughs> and uh, and I remember one show we had Gilbert and George, the artist. Oh, and someone who was in Coronation Street. And I was thinking, God, only on Graham's show would you get this weird mix of people. Yeah. <laughs> I met Gilbert and George once in um, a chemist's and I was, I was really starstruck. I was looking at them just going, oh my God, there they are, Gilbert and George. And then without warning, Gilbert turned round and looked at me and said, excuse me, young man, um, you know with glasses, what's the name of that piece of string that holds your glasses around your neck? And I was just like, I was not prepared for a question like that from this artistic hero. And I, I was desperate to impress and I just went, glasses lassoes. <laughs> just looked at me and went, no, I, I don't think it's that. <laughs> you failed. No, just Whatever dreadful. the test was. Yeah. Um, but yes, true. No, how amazing as well to, to look at Graham now and see how he blazed the trail. And now he's, you know, all the massive celebs are beating down his door oh, to talk to him. Yeah, he's the, the number one port of call for anyone coming here. Yeah. Also, I think he, he's very clever, uh, Graham, in that because what he does, he'll sometimes he'll be quiet. And not many people in his position do do that. Like if the guests are funny, he'll let them be funny. And yeah. he does. I think he really helps people shine. People yeah. who you're watching going, God, I know they're dull as ditch water. But <laughs> he's making them look amazing. Yeah. And then sometimes if the guests aren't good, that's when you see a Graham kind of roll up his sleeves, goes, OK, I'm going to have to do a lot to yeah. make, you know, make the yeah. show go. Um, and that, that's smart because otherwise people get fed up with you. But I don't think people, people aren't fed up with Graham because I think he... He knows how to limit himself. Yeah. yeah, he was born for it, really. Oh, hey. God, yes. Yeah. He really is. I, the first gig I did with him, uh, this was before he did telly, and he hadn't done much. And um, he'd, done, <laughs> he'd done a really funny, he'd done an Edinburgh Festival show, which is very Graham. Like, he hadn't really done stand-up, but he thought, well, I'll do a one-hour show. <laughs> and uh, called, I thought it was called Mother Teresa's Tea Trolley or something. And he just basically ran around the stage with a tea towel on his head pretending to be Mother Teresa. <laughs> and it was as funny as it sounds. But he hadn't really done stand-up. And we, how we kind of bonded was we had to do a long journey. I drove us up to Cheshire, to Chester, to do this gig. And I'm a very slow driver. So we kind of bonded on the way. And then when he did the gig, I was watching him going, oh, he doesn't seem to know what stand-up is. <laughs> He didn't really have sort of jokes, but then he did stuff in the audience talking to them. And that was where he just like the place just lit up because he was so naturally funny and so good at not editing his thoughts. When he sees something in people, he'll just say it. And he's right. You know, he's got a very good quick way of judging people in an instant yeah. and just fantastic. And it was very shortly after that that he got the Carnal Knowledge TV show and kind of he said that was great because he learned how to do telly when no one was watching. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I remember that. It was like a proper yeah. after the pub vibe, wasn't it? That's it, yeah. 
But how how did you get in? Because obviously you were in a um, you were in a rockabilly band and you had some some success, you know. And obviously you had comedy going at the same time. Was it just a desire to to be on stage? Was music something that you would have considered as a career if comedy hadn't uh, hadn't taken off? No. Well, I might have considered it, but music wouldn't have allowed me. <laughs> <laughs> I was real. I'm really not musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the rockabilly band thing, I was, uh, this was when I was like 17, came to London. Um, uh, the, I would have been, so this would have been 81. So it was, uh, there'd been sort of new wave and I had friends and we all dressed up in frilly outfits and lived in a village and tried to be new romantics. Mm-hmm. So, and, but I wasn't really swept up by anything except I, you know, I liked dressing up. And I remember, and we were, I remember going to see Susie and the Banshees and thinking they were amazing mm. and she was incredible. And uh, then I came to London and got a job at a hotel and it just happened that there were, oh, I'd, I'd, I heard the Cramps and the B-52s mm. and I really liked them. And then when I got this job in this uh, hotel, this, there would just happen to be, Rockabilly's also working there. And uh, I realized, oh, there's, there's the Cramps leads to this other music. And then mm. I just really got into that scene. And uh, a girl art came up to me in a, a club, like a rockabilly club, and just said, oh, I really like your shoes. Do you want to be in a band? <laughs> so like, ah. I was about 19 then. And I did have these very cool shoes that were very popular at the time, uh, American saddle shoes, mm-hmm. which are those white, they're white and blue or white and red or white and brown. And it was a big thing if you could get them from America. And they were these original shoes and everyone was obsessed with original 40s and 50s clothes. So uh, her, luckily, this is so anti-feminism. Luckily, her boyfriend was really musical. <laughs> so he taught me how to play drums and uh, everyone was kind of learning an instrument. Uh, so she played slap bass, uh, stand-up bass. And then we had a girl sax player. I had two girlfriends who were sax players. So we did stuff. The idea was that we were, all girl, we were an all-girl band, but we didn't have uh, a, guitar, a girl guitarist. Um, so we had Jim was the guitarist and at the same time uh, I was going out with a guy who was in a band and then his uh, school friend of his he came up now he is really good and is still going um, Sonny West uh, I knew him as Matt and he was one of those people who would sit by a record player and just learn the guitar and that was the thing I was never into because as far as I was concerned, it seemed like he never went out or did anything except learn <laughs> to play the guitar. And I was like, but we sh- you should be out. Of course, like five years later, he's traveling the world. Everybody wants to, you know, him to play guitar for them. And I was like, oh, maybe if I'd practice. But what's the incentive yeah. to practice when you were already in the band just by virtue of the fact yeah. that you're in cool shoes on? In good shoes. And also rock is quite easy. Mm-hmm. You know, to keep the beat was easy. And we would go busking. And I had just, would, then I would just take stand-up snare with me. And it was just it was just exciting. And it was mm. also that sort of time in London where everything was cheap. It was a cheap place to live. Um, and so we did. And then we did do proper gigs. We would do all dayers and weekenders, um, which I used to love where you'd go to a holiday camp in February. Mm. Yeah. Um, but what was, what I thought was amazing about it was that you get really pissed in like the big dance hall and then go and you know your chalet was like 10 minutes away yeah you have a shower and everything yeah else. and then it's you the just go back possible. there and crash and then you get up again and go into the room and carry on and, yeah um, that's the civilized so way to all do of it. that went on and um and seeing and i saw at that time 
it's funny when you look about what their age is. Well, I saw loads of really good blues people because they were still alive. Mm. Like mm. original people like um, Howling Wolf. Oh, and wow. So My people favorite. like this and to uh, John Lee Hooker and wow. stuff. And I remember going to see a lot of people like that and also got into, there was a club then running, which is still running, Gaz's Rockin' Blues. Oh, yeah. Great and club. funnily enough, I went there, the boyfriend that I had then, we're still very good friends, and he's still sort of in that scene. And we went there, and I couldn't believe that Gaz Mayle is still there, <laughs> um, looking exactly the same. And he was, he's the son of John Mayle, John Mayle's Blues Breakers. Yeah. So he obviously had grown up with that music. And then he, you know, and then when I went there, so it was Blues, but it was also Trojan and Scar. So I got really into that then and found that music from that. And uh, when I went there, it was about two years ago, and I couldn't believe that, you know, the club was in a different place, but the club was still running. And I looked and I thought, well, isn't it funny? The audience is sort of the same as it was, probably, I'm saying, 30 years ago. Yeah. Because there was people like me who were rocking at that time, but there was also just people who were a bit like me who were just people who were just into it because it was the different kind of music mm. and it wasn't the music you were being sold. But they were, you know, now in their 20s. Yeah, yeah, still, yeah, yeah. But finding that different music, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. And they always had live musicians, you know, some really great musicians who by day do all sorts of boring jobs, but are mm. all great musicians, you know. Um, so... And that I sort of stayed in that, and it was only when I came, sort of got out of that. I think when I got slightly panicky that I was still a waitress and I was heading towards thirty. <laughs> um, that I—that's when I started to think about comedy. <laughs> that's, um, that's not the safest step, is it? Yeah. No, no, exactly. <laughs> oh, I need I something know. secure. I'm gonna... <laughs> I love <laughs> it. <laughs> I love that you moved to London and at 19, this is what every 19 year old dreams of when they move to the big city, just catapulted yeah. into this rock and roll world. Because, you know, I feel like so many 19 year olds get dressed in front of the mirror, put an outfit on and they're like, you know, maybe I'll look so cool that someone's going to pick me out of a crowd, yes. invite me to join their rockabilly band and I'll get to travel around playing with legends of blues and rock and roll. It's all about the shoes. It's all about shoes. Yeah, the shoes are very important, uh, yeah. evidently, when you're a teenager. That's amazing. So, uh, presumably, you were doing comedy bits and bobs on the side then, or you just felt home on felt at home on on stage, or what was it that led you in that direction after that? I think I was one of those people. I'd always liked comedy, and and I'd started to become fascinated by was it a thing you could do. Mm. Um, and the person that made me think, like, I, like as a kid, uh, Dave Allen was the person I'd loved. Oh, yeah. And I'd watch it with my mum and dad. And I, what was funny, I thought, what a funny kid I was. Because I never liked the sketches, which you would think a kid would like, because that's mm. sort of acting out and it's a bit bigger. But they're just sitting and on the, you know, sitting, smoking and drinking and, and telling stories, what it felt like. Um, mm. That I loved. I just, I was just mesmerised by him. And even to this day, when I look at him, I think what I like about him still, and I think he's, his, his material has aged really well, is that he never patronized an audience. He wasn't that I'm an entertainer, which I suppose is what I always like in everything. I suppose that's why I sort of like rockabilly, I like punk, I like anything that's a bit, hey, we're not giving you what you want necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I always felt with him, he was like, he would do his bit. And it always felt like at the end of the show, it was just your turn to talk, but there wasn't time. <laughs> you know, he'd go, well, I've thought this and I've thought this. And it was always like he'd go, and what about you? You know, what's new with you? Mm. And then, oh, what a shame. It's the end of the show. Mm. And oh. uh, it felt sort of like that. But, oh, the person who made me think you could do it was um, I saw a video of Steve Martin. Oh, and it was favorite. the one where he's putting on the bunny ears mm. and running around. And it's a massive gig. Like, I think it's the San Francisco Philharmonic yeah, or something. Wild and Crazy Guy tour, wasn't it? Yeah. And it looked easy. It looked like, <laughs> oh, God, he hasn't even worked out jokes. This is just nonsense. <laughs> this is just being a fool. I could do this. <laughs> and that was the thing. And then I saw Jack D at the comedy store because I was friends with Mark Lamar, but I knew him from the rockabilly world. Of course, yeah. So I knew Mark from that, and it was the, we sort of knew that Mark was a comedian, and then somebody said, oh, he's been on telly, and we were all like, oh, he hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and he was on the Jonathan Ross show, was it Saturday Zoo or something like that, and Mark mm. Lamar started to get on telly, but we always sort of didn't really believe it. <laughs> uh, and, and also because also we weren't people that sat in and watched telly, mm. so you know, you were out all the time, and I don't remember watching telly, so I wasn't really aware of it. Um, but went to see him at the comedy store, and Jack D was on, and I just... Again, I went, this bloke's just moaning. <laughs> He's just standing there being sarcastic. And also the fact that he didn't like things that pe most people like, I liked about him. Yeah. Um, and he was very down on fun. You know, what <laughs> organized fun that I hate. Um, so and I, that, that was the one I thought, oh, I think I could do this. And so then I, there was a club which was running until not long ago. Um, in called the Comedy Cafe in over in Old Street in the city mm. of London, and this was before Old Street became Shoreditch and trendy. So at this time, it was empty at night. The yeah. Office workers would all go off back to Essex. So it was a very weird area at night. But there was this club, um, and you could, and it was quite big because the office workers would go to it, and then they would get on their trains back to Essex and Kent. So at night you'd walk through then, there'd be absolutely nobody around in that area then. Mm. And Noel Faulkner, who ran it, who's only just, he's gone back, he's bought a boat and is living in Galway. He always loved oh, sailing. So he's gone to do that, which I'm really happy for him. And uh, you just went and you signed up the sheet because there was no mobile phones. So you went, mm. you signed up. And I all I remember was thinking, I went with my friend and I just wanted to get on stage and not leave. I didn't want to chicken out and run out before they called my name. But I wasn't, I wasn't particularly good, but I was better than all the other terrible people on the bill doing it for the first time. <laughs> Best of a bad bunch. Yeah, so I, so I came first. It was like a competition thing, so I came first. And uh, I got a few laughs. And I, I, honestly, God, that was it in that I was hooked, in that yeah. I thought, I think this is the thing. But I wasn't... I wasn't, certainly wasn't great. Um, it took me a long time to get good at it, but I didn't realise that. And that, that, I think that's the beauty of it, or you'd never do it. People say it's like having a baby. You forget how painful it was or you'd never have another one, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I had, I'm sure I had some terrible gigs, but I, if the, people did laugh, that was such a thrill that I just thought, oh, no, I'm going to keep going. And also I had nothing to fall back on. I think that's great. That's always good. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Necessity. even like the even like you know nobody was crying out for me to be a drummer in their band, 
<laughs> you know, they would go, well, we've really, we've, there's other people now that are better at drumming than, you know, it was fun, but you're not really a drummer. Um, so I think that was good that I, and sort of, uh, and I've and de- kind of devoted myself to it. Mm. Yeah. It's nice that you sort of found another passion like that. It's, you know, yeah. they, a lot of people, they kind of, they have one thing and then when that when that kind of drifts away as as a lot of first first loves do um they kind of they put away childish things and they 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 have to you know get that 9 to 5 whereas you you seem to have gone on an even more ambitious trip to uh, to become a comedian it's lovely but there's no thought in it that's mm. what people forget <laughs> you know, there's no there's no plan or thought you know i'm a I'm a drumming waitress um, <laughs> who would sing. And I, again, I, people go, could you sing? And I go, I can pretend to sing. Like I can do an impression of someone singing. <laughs> so I would like copy, um, what's her name? Uh, Janice Martin was the oh, one. Yeah. She's a 50s singer, great voice, real, one of those real kind of rockabilly with a bit of a R in it. And, you know, like more heavy than country hmm. and uh, great. And she kept going all her life. Um, and so I would copy her, but if you asked me to actually just sing as myself, then I couldn't sing. But um, I think that's such a superpower, though. I mean, obviously, you know, with the comedy, there had to be a kernel of talent there, otherwise you wouldn't be getting the laughs. But I think yeah. it's a, it's a real, it, it's such a powerful thing to be able to go up on stage and be like, I don't care if I'm the best at this. I'm just going to get up and enjoy it. Because obviously, like you say, that's how you get better at something. I think... You know, uh, the idea of getting up and doing stand up comedy and failing at it is a lot of people's idea of just abject hell. So (laughs) the fact that you're able to get up there and persevere through it, even though you might not have been the best at it to get to a point where you were, um, you know, I think that's uh, that's that's a a real um, is it even a skill? It's more like a kind of a, um, like a, like <laughs> a cognitive like a kind of a blessing. Upbringing. You must suffer. You must <laughs> yes. suffer to get there in the end, you know. Yeah, and you yeah. say oh, it seems like hell, and it is hell. Yeah. Because there's nothing, I mean, not hell compared to, you know, real things that are terrible. Mm. But when you're on stage, this is the thing, it's not like being in a play that doesn't go well. Uh, if you, they don't like you. Because mm. mm. it is you. So it's yeah. personal that they are standing on stage and people are, you know, whatever they do, shout, talk about you, you know. And actually, I think people are nicer than they should be. <laughs> you know, I, it was only when I started watching comedy when we were on holiday in New York and I was watching a comedian who was awful and I thought, God, I see why people heckle. I so want you to get off stage. I hate you. I really I hate you with a passion because you're ruining my life for five minutes. <laughs> That's so true. There's nothing worse. I mean, maybe oh. a bad play is worse, but uh, I say marginally worse is being trapped in a room with a bad comedian on stage. Isn't it? It's the worst. Yeah. yeah. And also it's the, and that brings me back to my friend Sonny when he would be practicing you can learn instruments in the privacy of your bedroom and then mm. come out, you know, and be a butterfly. But you mm. stand up, you have to learn in front of people. It's the yeah. only way. Yeah. Oh, it's high stakes business. We, we talked to Soweto Kinch, who was a, uh, he's obviously a great saxophonist, um, but he also uh, is in, uh, a big into hip hop and he ran his own sort of hip hop club. And the way he was talking about the fact, you know, you stand up there, mm. if you don't get it right, 
everyone is going to tell you how bad you are and you shouldn't have got on the stage in the first place. And it's just, yeah. so, it's like, you know, it's, it's Christians and lions. Do you know what I mean? It is. And also I think hip hop and rap is similar because a bit like comedy, everybody sort of thinks they could do it. You know, yeah. if you're yeah. into hip hop and rap, you kind of go, well, I could, I'm probably quite good. And if you think you're funny, you go, well, I think I could do better than that. So there's a lot of people watching you who think they could do that. So you, you know, you, I can completely feel that you're going to, you have to be, get it right. And also, I would imagine it's a similar feeling that the words come because people are staring at you. You know, yes. <laughs> there is nothing Whereas actually makes they your run from brain you. right. Yeah, better than people staring at you, wait, waiting for the end of this sentence, and it better be a punchline. <laughs> oh, so, should we get started with your first one then? New York before the war, Jesse with Jesse Malin. Can you talk to us about this one? You said this was the last the last group you saw before lockdown. Yes, he was in Edinburgh and it was it was this. Uh, what day were today? Because it was. Yeah, it was 7th of March mm. uh, 2020. And uh, what was odd? And, and this was when there was talk of this COVID thing going around. But also what was odd that night is a small venue, the Mash House in Edinburgh. And uh, I, I like Jesse Malin, but I'd only heard of him like a couple of years ago, heard of him. I mean, I'd known the punk stuff he'd done, but I wasn't particularly into that. And it was when we were in New York and my husband went, oh, that guy that was in, God, I can't even remember the name of the band now. This, this is his bar, because he's bought some bars in the Lower East Side. He's been mm. sensible, right? Um, and then I kind of went, oh, and he does this sort of Americana, I would call it, music that I mm. like, where it's a slice of life, it's a story, you know? Yeah. And it's a bit Tom Petty-ish, but actually he's a bit more, he's a bit more intellectual, I think, more poetic. Uh, but, I, uh, but it's always got that kind of uh, rock and rollness behind it that I really like. And the night we went to see them, there was a flood in the mash tongue because we went there and everyone was standing outside where everyone, and that's that awful thing about going to small gigs in Edinburgh. Edinburgh, where I live now, it's a terrible town for music. <laughs> There's just hardly any music venues. So, well, same all across the country at the oh, moment. Oh, it's and just, it's... you know, and this, this, <laughs> you often you see the same people. And, uh, and I've sort of got to the age where you go, oh, yes, it's the same old people <laughs> that we see <laughs> at it. all these gigs, you know, <laughs> especially as a lot of people are going to see. Was it the only ones? Or, you know, there's a lot of old punks, mm, <laughs> you know, now it. who are, are, are traveling around. Who went to see Department S? We went to see, um, you know, and you see just people your age and you're all kind of checking each other out going, oh, God, you look a lot older. Um, <laughs> or, oh, you know, and my husband's standing there going, oh, I'm the only one with hair. I'm delighted. <laughs> and uh, so there was a flood. So they said, oh, it be, it would, it would, they're seeing what they can do. Um, but the venue's flooded. and But right next to it is this other small venue, the Belanger. And they said, oh, they're probably going to, we're going to do the gig in there. So it was about an hour and a half before we did get in. But he said, oh, we can't set up, you know, we can't set up the rest of the band. Mm. So we're just going to have to do it uh, kind of acoustic. Mm. And it was great. Oh. Um, it was that, you know, oh, you know, everybody's like willing him on. And uh, and it also it was nice because then you were hearing the songs differently. And it was actually a perfect sort of size venue for, for that. Mm. And I just loved it. And and I and this song addicted it m makes me think of New York. Like me and my husband, we got married in New York. It's sort of been somewhere. I started going, first time I went was 1989 because a friend had moved there. So that was, it was New York again when like what London used to be when it was cheap and rough mm -hmm. 
And to go to the Lower East Side was a very different experience to now. And it's sort of, the song to me is kind of the things I love. And it's why when I moved to Edinburgh, we lived in a nice area and I was really uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And now we live in Leith because I love it because it's got that feel of life around you and history Mm. and things. I I like stuff going on at a bus stop, you know. I like to watch people like that. So this song, Addicted, reminds me of that sort of time of first going to New York and friends I'd met there, but it also, and that, and a low life. I've always had a fascination uh, with low life, but I mean that in a positive way. Hmm. You know, people who are living on the edge or are just going to go, no, I'm still, you know, like when I went to Gaza's Rock and Blues and there were people there from 30 years ago who go, no, I'm still living that life because that's my passion. Hmm. So I liked all that. And it was only when I listened to it again this morning. You know, when you sing along to something and you go, oh, I've got the words wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the lines, he says, I'm addicted to the sadness. And I really like that because I think that about cities, Mm. you know, Mm. the sadness and tales and heartbreak all over them. But he also says, I'm addicted to the jubilation because that's, you know, the high that can be one good night out, you know, that puts life right again. And then I thought he said, I'm addicted to the downstroke. And then he does that downstroke on guitar that I thought, oh, God, that is exactly the sound of a guitar that I always am looking for in Mm. something. And then he doesn't. He says, I'm living on the downstroke. (laughs) (laughs) But it's still sort of uh, it's sort of about all that world. Yeah, could have been a lot worse, I think. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. God, goes without saying to say this really, but like, you must feel very wasteful. If you were kind of active and going out to gigs all the time, it must be a bit of a heartbreaker to not be able to see live music. Yeah, it, 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 it's, 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 yeah, it is. It's weird. Mm. It's, and it's weird, you know, how musicians, um, like we were talking earlier, like friends, I don't know them, but it, through Twitter, you're sort of talking to people and then friends of mine who are in bands that are actually friends, but they're, you know, they're in, rockabilly bands that would do festivals in Europe. That's a big thing, Mm. obviously, Brexit as well. And they're going, we don't know if these things are going to happen. And that they're, you know, not able to play. And and then imagining what distance gigs, you know, when can we be in a room where we're allowed to, you know, breathe on each other and shout and yell and stuff. That's 
uh, you know, that's going to be a while. Yeah. I think the, um, the the other thing about uh, these sort of smaller live gigs uh, and your, your story about the, the venue being flooded and everyone being mm. outside. I kind of love the idea as well of just walking down the street and thinking, I'm going to this gig. Oh, look, there's a massive queue outside. <laughs> no, yeah, no, yeah, actually, yeah. It's, just, it's just a flood. <laughs> don't worry. Um, but it's things like that and the fact that they, they kind of had... Um, uh, I had a friend who used to hate football and he'd say, well, why do you watch football? And I said, well, mm. because it's 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 live. It, you know, yes. it, whatever happens will happen. Quite often it'll be very, very dull, but every now and again something amazing will happen. And live gigs are like that. It's, it's so different to just listening to a recording. It's like when you go to these places, something like that, well, it could have been the end of the whole night, but then out of this adversity, you get this marvellous kind of more special, more intimate moment out of the whole live experience. Little moments like that, they really take you out of the ordinary and, and really show you the the sort of passion behind the music, I think, sometimes. Absolutely. And that, and I think whatever first gig, I, and I generally don't go to massive gigs. I don't really like big gigs. Hmm. I prefer sort of small gigs that whatever one you go to first is going to be amazing, even if it's terrible, because of what you're saying, because of that being in a room and hearing stuff coming out of speakers at you yeah. and all of that. Um, I mean, I'm quite a restless person at a gig. I like, I walk around a lot. I'm one of those people. Like I can't go, oh God, I have to sit in my seat um, because I don't have a great concentration pan. And sometimes I've seen people who I've gone, I've loved it, but three songs is enough. And, <laughs> and then I want to go to a bar, you know, but I, I, I got enough out of it. And also, I'm, I actually also, I love football as well. And I love it for all those reasons. Uh, mm. uh, and there's a, a beauty in it as well. When there are certain, you know, certain players do certain things, you're like, oh, my God. You know, and I think that ha that happens in music as well. That mm. elevates everything. I do like a show like that. We, we, I had a friend who went to see um, New Kingdom once, an American hip hop band. And it's, everything went wrong. The, the, the venue like caught fire there was, there was explosions on the desk you know every, everything went wrong the entire sound system went down everyone got evacuated out of the building and they're all basically stood in the car park and new kingdom came out these two rappers and they climbed on top of their tour bus and did the whole thing a cappella in the car park and i just thought that is so much better uh, you know to have yeah. experienced that than just to have seen the normal thing and you only get it when you have those real life moments that you know you can't plan for and you know that kind of on the cuff stuff and I guess comedy is quite similar to that because you know if you do get that heckle that often might send you in a completely different direction or you know how people are reacting can be completely unexpected sometimes I imagine. Yes, you can you can feel, oh, they really identifying with this with me so I can go mm -hmm. further with this or explore it because they're oh, and, and similarly other times you're going, oh, right. <laughs> they were really just staring at me like, well, you are a really horrible person. Why would you ever think that about something? And weirdly, um, I think comedy has worked amazingly well in the lockdown because people start doing the gigs on Zoom and mm. They they are different, obviously, but they have something good. There's an intimacy. And uh, you're seeing all the people on screen. And what is really lovely is before the show, that's open. And those people are talking to each other. Oh. So it, people are in their living room. You know, they could be anywhere. There's a girl uh, from Ireland who I know who's always at gigs, it seems. Mm. And there's a woman in Australia and she watches them at breakfast before she goes to work. And, you know, so people from all over the world, all over the country, and they're 
and they'll have a chat with each other because people are desperate to talk to somebody who isn't their family, yeah. you know, who isn't <laughs> in their baby. house. So there is an intimacy, and I think, and just people being able to see other people in lockdown and go, oh, good, they're sitting drinking too much as well. That's great. <laughs> you know, that we, it's, a, it's become a sort of support to some people. And, it, and it's actually, it, it's worked well. It's, it's funny because I was about to say when you were, you know, um, before you said that, that maybe lockdown has put a stop to that kind of wonderful spontaneity that you get when it's just live events happening around people. But obviously people are learning to adapt. I've only, I don't think I've seen any, any um, comedy gigs live streamed. I've only gone to like stuffy lectures. Like I watched Hugh Fernley Whittingstall talk about his <laughs> new book for, for, you know, I bought a ticket mm. to this for some reason, talking about his new line of kombucha and it was all very stiff and cardboardy. Obviously I need to tune into more comedy gigs, yeah. make some friends, talk there's to some, people who aren't the cat. Yeah. There's, some, <laughs> there's something lovely as well. Uh, like you say, cause I do little, um, DJ gigs online and they have it's like a little chat room and all that sort of stuff and mm. what's really nice is that um you do just get people who pop up who are you know in Australia having their breakfast I guess it's a guy yeah. in Germany there's someone in Canada and that it, it, the, the very idea of that is kind of magical do you know what I mean where you, you you've actually gone further than you could ever imagine going and you haven't even left your front room it's amazing and it's very exciting just the contact like I I um I I follow Dread Zone on Facebook. Oh yeah. And uh, and they they'll put up people do DJ sessions, you know, mm. just in their house or wherever. And there was one, and I was cooking, so I was going I, to me like a bit of you know heavy reggae is perfect cooking mm. music. So he was happened to be doing a session, and he's called is he King Shiloh, and he he does it out of uh, somewhere in Holland, but he's but you can hear his accent. He's actually from somewhere like Mansfield, you know, Derbyshire <laughs> way, um, so you can hear it every now and again. But I just loved the fact that it, the chat bit was making me laugh so much because it was all like, you know, shout out to, love to, and all of this. And so mm. I just thought, oh, why don't I buy him a cup of coffee? So I did the thing where you buy a cup of coffee and I put Joe and Leaf and he goes, big love, Joe and Leaf. And I was so thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like making my food go, oh my God, I got big love from King Shiloh. It's just so ridiculous. But it's just that, it's just the contact thing, isn't it? It's just yeah, great. It's and, and also that being in a thing where you're going, all of us like this music. So we've yeah. chosen it and we're all sort of bonded together with this man who <laughs> did look funny. He looked like a sort of, he looks like a, a kid's presenter from the 80s, um, <laughs> but who's put on a paunch. You know, he wears right. like big dungarees and, and bright Adidas t-shirts and things. Uh, but he plays, you know, great music. Mm. That's the main thing, isn't it? Well, speaking of great music, I have to say that uh, the next track you've chosen is one of my all-time favourites. It's absolutely brilliant record, Frankie Valley, The Night. Tell us about why this particular tune is in your phonographic memories. Again, it was a hard one to pick, which, and I don't know, I think I'd seen, somebody had put up, uh, might be in a Twitter or something, um, a clip of Northern Soul Dancing. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, again, every time I see Northern Soul Dancing, I go, God, I love it. Mm -hmm. Because they look like they're floating. And I can watch it for hours, that lightness of them floating and the Oxford bag trousers. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was at school, I went to a boarding school and a lot of the girls, uh, it was quite a group of them, came from the Northwest. And two of them were from Wigan. And this, would, this was the 70s when Wigan Casino 
was huge and that was the heart of Northern Soul. And it was like knowing celebrities. I would always go, and do you live near there? Well, have you been there? And of course, mm. we were all too young to go, but they're going, yeah, we just walk right past it. It was like, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> so I thought lockdown, why? And I've weirdly, you know, it's YouTube is amazing, isn't it? I just type mm. in, learn to do Northern Soul dancing. And it, this man, I followed him and he has the Northern Soul little banner with a little hand. And it's so funny. So he has, I think I got up to level five um, and then I couldn't find him again. And what it is, so it's him and he does it really simply from absolute basic first steps. And it's so funny. And I felt like I had a relationship with him doing this. But all I see of him, I know what his kitchen floor looks like. He's got lovely stone flagstones. And I know his trousers and his shoes <laughs> and he's got a Labrador, but I've never seen him from the waist up. <laughs> wow, that's quite weird. You have no idea what he looks like because all he's showing you is from the waist down because and he shows you his hands if he's doing, you know, which way to move mm. your hands in and out. So I just started doing that and then and listening and listening obviously to Northern Soul and really got in really got into it. And then there were some, <laughs> some that um, are too fast that I really like as uh, Chuck Wood, Seven Days is Too Long. Oh, Dexys yeah, did record. it. That was when I first heard it was Dexys doing it. And uh, that I can't dance to that. It's far too fast <laughs> for me. But um, Frankie Valley, The Night, it's just the right speed for me. Um, and, and also because I used to do rockabilly dancing, you do strolling. So mm. it's very similar. So I was like, oh, I can sort of do this. And, and then this, I... Uh, I cannot believe that this was not a massive hit when it came out, but it wasn't. It's such a great song. Yeah. It's menacing. I think that's what I like because a lot of so mm. Northern Soul can get a little bit sickly. Mm. If you listen to too much, you go, oh, it's all a bit samey and a bit sickly and a bit nice. Like another track I nearly picked, Fontella Bass, mm -hmm. Rescue Me, because mm. she has such yeah. a great voice. And again, the pace of that is perfect for me. But I thought, no, because the night has that edge to it. And I think it is, there is something sort of scary about it. It's almost threatening of like he's saying, you know, well, you could leave me or you could go with this other man, but it's not going to work out well. You know, it's just like, oh, I don't know. Or sometimes I think it's like that. Oh, life could be more exciting if you went for it. Yeah. You know, at night, that's when you go, oh, is this really what I want? Um, it's it's those kind of three in the morning thoughts. Um, and it's, it's just an amazing, and the rhythm is fantastic for dancing yeah. too. I, I just think it's got absolutely everything. I mean, I do like Frankie Valley and Four Seasons anyway. I think they have some great songs, but I think this is a fantastic song. Yeah, I love the, like you say, the, the mood of it is really important yeah. for that song because I think um, I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. When you've got um, a, a very tight genre like Northern Soul dancers mm. can be, and there is, you know, 90% of the songs are basically baby, baby, why don't you love me, you know, yeah. or baby, baby, come dance <laughs> yeah. with me, you know what I mean? And that that can bring you to a certain level of high, but there's there's always a point in a night where the accent needs to change and um, you, everyone kind of needs a reset, do you know, like everyone's yeah. like, well, we've, we've, re we've reached this point, we've run seven days and we're, we're absolutely we're danced out almost and then to drop it down and play a track like the night which is moody and you know the first yeah. words are beware do you know what i mean yes. it's like whoa yeah, yeah, this yeah. is this you may is lose stuff. more than you found it's like oh god yeah, it's a big decision yeah. and it is it's one of those ones that just um i, I was talking to um, Anne about it earlier uh, before we came on air and i was saying mm. uh, to me when i when i hear that track 
everything goes black and white. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm literally I'm in a, some film noir. There's Philip Marlowe smoking a fag in the corner. Do you know what I mean? It's like a monochromatic experience. I, I, it's almost like a time machine that takes you somewhere else. I love the kind of mystery of it all and the way it kind of feels so detached and, as you say, a, a little bit scary. Yeah, and that thwack of the drum is a great sound on it as well. you've mastered northern sold i mean i know you you said there's a certain pace that you need a track to be for yeah. you to feel comfortable <laughs> dancing but are you gonna because like northern soul clubs perhaps it's it's uh it's kind of a, less of an intimidating space to be in now but traditionally you know it's quite a sort of elitist kind of snobby space to be in are you gonna head out to a northern soul club when lockdown lifts and show off your your moves are you ready for that do you think no, <laughs> no, I'm very much a kitchen dancer, very oh, much so. I, I, you know, no anything. I mean, even when I was into rockabilly, like I was never very good at jiving. Like I, people would go, oh, she's there's no terrible thing. They used to come say a female bopper because most girls didn't do bopping. That was the boys, mm. and I wasn't never that good at jiving. And I think, oh god, that's very me though, because it was you have to be quite controlled and do what you're meant to do. Mm. Well, it's very <laughs> um, choreographed looking, isn't it? Yeah. Diving. It's, it's not and much freedom. Was a bit, yeah, and I was always a bit not ladylike enough for it, I think. <laughs> um, and Northern Soul, I, I'm still, uh, far enough, I, I put things on Instagram, like I film myself just for a laugh because I think it looks funny. Um, but also sometimes oh, I go, oh, sometimes I achieve floatiness. Um, sometimes I look, yeah. But generally, I don't have that. I don't know what it is, that ability to keep yourself up in the air and be light-footed enough to do it. Mm. Um, so I, I'm great one for dancing if it's a safe space. You know, <laughs> Northern wedding. Soul Club's not so much of a safe space. Yeah, not, not if people are judging <laughs> yeah. at all. My mate, for her 50th, she had a punk karaoke band. Ooh. And uh, that was, I'd never danced so much. And, <laughs> and everyone was doing songs badly, but the band was good. And mm. what turned out really weird was it was only at the end of it that I went, I looked at the drummer and he went, I, he said, are you, did you go to Oakham Sixth Form? And I went, oh my God, it is you. <laughs> and we were at Sixth Form together and he'd been, in, and I hadn't known of him for years since then. And I remember him, Ratty, he was called then. And he was, because I remember him having trousers um, and had, had Slaughter and the Dogs written down the side of oh, them. Right. 
Um, so he was full on punk. And then he said, oh, no, I've got a proper job. He said, I got a proper job when I was about 35, but I still do this. He does this. But Excellent. he only does it. He says, if people really um, say that they will only request good music. Well, this is the thing with weddings. Yeah. It's like people always say that and then the guests turn up and they may he'll, not have to. Yeah, it's say always no. a risk. You know, he'll yeah. just go, no, I, I tell, you know, I will not do it. You know, you have to have proper credentials. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. good, good for it. him. But that but was that was so fun. But it was, you know, completely safe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Another good thing about weddings, it is a safe space. Although, yeah. you know, you don't expect to see someone you knew from sixth form there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's a bit of a, <laughs> yeah. a glitch in the matrix. That's one of the great things about getting older, if, if you're involved in these sort of things, is, you know, you begin to think, let's like, just, just strip away some of the bits I don't enjoy. You know, let's make sure that they are going to play the good music. I'm going to say that I won't come unless I do that. And that, you know, the, the venue is going to be right. And it's all going to... When you were talking about the... Um, the, the YouTube videos mm. uh, just occurred to me, you know, he's got this nice stone floor. I, I, I suddenly had a vision of, of the guy going into with the estate agent looking around going, yeah, I could dance on that. <laughs> yeah, I think totally. Yeah, I mean, they would say that. Then I, I built up my head. I thought, oh, maybe, you know, <laughs> it's like a sort of Disney thing where you go, oh, he's hideously disfigured. That, <laughs> but he's got the gift of dance. <laughs> That's why I can't show himself. But, yeah. That's so funny. I'm more thinking like if he's a proper mod, he just can't be arsed to like iron his shirt or do his uh, hair yeah. or whatever. So he's just yes. like, can't be, I'm just not going to film yeah. myself. That's why I could never get into that scene because they all, they're all just a bit too neat. Oh, too much me. ironing. I couldn't, I couldn't oh, manage it. Well, a lot of them, I weirdly, Northern Soul, there's some terrible dresses. <laughs> because they're not like mods because a lot of them don't quite know what they are. So there's a lot mm. of just wearing baggy sort of 80s jeans mm. you know and bad clothing because they don't quite know what what is That's the, the point look. actually yeah. but they do it with such They're conviction not like mods who know exactly what the look is yeah you know? yeah that yeah, is that's the point. too much for me um shall we move on to your third phonographic memory then a bit of a scar vibe to this one tell us about original rude girl this again the pace is perfect for working out to Ooh. <laughs> so well, i've been of, productive uh, over lockdown because that oh god i was you know when like we'd moved out of london up to scotland and then when we moved to leith when lockdown happened I was like, oh i'm so glad i live here because i can go running from mm. my house i don't have to drive anywhere from my house i'm near portobello beach so it takes mm. me like seven minutes and then i'm at the top of the beach and to run along by water is oh, fantastic like yeah, because yeah. i've tried running there's a links you know running around the park and i'm bored mm. you know 2k i'm bored mm. and I, I just oh god i can't do this anymore but by the by the sea it's fantastic so i've been running by the sea and then i thought oh but i need to do some kind of weights with arms thing and uh and it was the sun was shining and i just happened to have on i downloaded a load of scar um, because a friend of mine had um, put up a little video. His uh, daughter, who's 14, had wanted her hair, her head shaved. And he, he did it and speeded it up, but he played Skinhead Girl. Mm -hmm. So if you know that track. And, and I hadn't heard that for years. And it's such a good track. And that got me back into listening to ska and reggae. And, um, and I was sort of working out outside in Scotland because it was sunny. I was like, oh, God, this is so good. Our neighbors, I don't know what they'll think. But, you know. <laughs> Uh, because they can't hear the music, they just see me doing it. <laughs> and uh, and then this track is Neville Staples and his wife, Sugary Staples. I was listening to a lot of Dub Pistols. 
because mm -hmm. they're very, I was listening to all happy music, Northern Soul, uh, Dub Pistols, because they do quite a variety of music goes into their music and Dreadstone and interesting mixtures of things. Mm. And so I, you know, I, I like traditional scar and everything. But then when I heard this original Rude Girl, it made me so happy. Mm. It genuinely makes me happy because, and I see, a, I see like an old school dance hall. It reminds me, I suppose, of going to weekenders when you've got wooden floor under you and just a load of people just jumping up and down, not caring. It's not a, it's not a cool track. It's not like an obscure, oh my God, you know who's playing the trumpet on this kind of a track. Mm. It's just a, oh my God, I, I, I do feel I'm 14 and I've got my, like my gang of girls with mm. me and we're thinking we're being kind of cool and a little bit hard um, and dancing. And there's a bit in it towards the end where it runs up to where it does a hey, I just, oh my God. Because it's time to move your feet and skank. Come jump and bounce around to the original root girl sound. To the original root girl sound. dancing but then i i don't know what would be the the thing that would you could do beyond that a few too excited <laughs> i know when my when my husband went to see the specials when they uh this year or last year when they had reformed and he went to see them and he filmed a bit and he said and this is the moment where i took my trousers off and ran down to the mosh pit <laughs> where and i think that's that a bit of it you know when you go i don't know what to do now to yeah. express how happy and excited i am and I think that's when I might do, I used to do this in my early 20s, when very excited where you'd, I'd lift my top and show my bra. And it was like a thing, you know, do it like to girlfriends, do it like just like you're going, oh my God, I'm so excited, look at my bra! <laughs> and that, this, this track makes me feel lift my bra, lift my top excited. And you were doing this in the garden with the neighbours watching. Right? I didn't lift my top in the garden. <laughs> That's lovely. I, I tell you what, one of the, the things we've discovered quite a lot uh, recently doing all these podcasts is uh, how underrated music that makes you happy is. Yeah. Do you know, like the, the, the maudlin, you know, comfortably numb Pink Floyd and I'm miserable you know it's all very good music i'm not i'm not detracting from that but quite often it's treated in a very different way to music that makes you happy and music that makes you happy is i think is often quite much harder to make so harder to make and, and be taken seriously mm -hmm. but it's it's so valuable because like you say here you are in lockdown you need a lift you need something yeah. to get you going and motivated and what a wonderful thing scar is for doing that it's just got that uplifting vibe to it hasn't it yeah, and it makes you think of, of sunny days and good times and mm. sociability. Yeah, I think I think it is. I, I mean, generally, I do like, I prefer, I suppose it's, it depends what you call happy music, mm. isn't it? I suppose I like things to dance to, or I like quite angry. I like a bit of garbage. I'm only happy when it mm. rains. Love that. Mm. But again, that's dancey, isn't it? Very sad things I might like, but I can't listen to. 
Because then I go, well, now I feel genuinely sad. You kind of have to be miserable to really enjoy miserable music. Uh, I think if you if you put miserable music on when you're not in a funk, then it kind of brings you down. But when you are in a funk and you put it on, it kind of brings you out of it. I odd, remember odd splitting thing. up with somebody. He dumped me. And I think that's the only time I've really enjoyed listening to sad music because I wasn't that upset. <laughs> you know I mean? And I look back on that time and the thing, I played a lot of Scott Walker. Yeah, the sort of stuff that you need to be um, by a window while it's raining outside to yeah, listen to and properly. singing it loudly and drinking red wine and going, yes, oh, God, this is yeah, so yeah. tragic. <laughs> um, and but, but also I was aware that I'm thoroughly enjoying this. Sinead O'Connor, nothing compares to you. And I actually can't listen to that because it honestly does make me cry. There's something mm. in her voice makes me cry. I don't understand what kind of people would like to listen to something that's so sad. I, I'm, I totally relate to you and I'm the exact same with mm. um, with TV programmes. My sister keeps telling me to watch Chernobyl. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Why would I want? I, I, yeah, exactly. And I don't want to. I don't want to. Like, yeah. it sounds like the most authentic thing in the world. That's exactly yeah. why I don't want to. Why would I want to revisit yes. that yeah. period in history? Yeah, I'm totally with you there. Yeah. I, I started yeah. watching um, It's a Sin, which was absolutely wonderful. But I've kind of got past the first couple. Maybe I'm on the third, I think. And I, I'm, I just don't want to go to the end because I'm. I know it's going to be really. I've got to know all these characters, mm. and I know bad things are going to happen i was talking to a friend about um it's a sin and he's a much he's much younger than me and he was saying he was watching it and i said um i don't think i can watch it because mm. i was there then and mm. i remember when people started dying and then i said do you know what it's like when i tried to get my mum to watch the crown and she was so <laughs> not interested because i thought of course she was there not that she's yeah, yeah. with the queen but she really you know that was like when i was alive in the 1950s yeah. and i remember all of this so i'm not i don't you know and she was she didn't really understand why i wanted to watch it and i said god did you know about uh, in london when there was a smog and she went, well yeah so did. it's so funny yeah. yeah that's so it's interesting you mentioned the crown because i was just thinking when we were talking about um well uh, just a second ago when we were um, when I mentioned Chernobyl I was watching The Crown last night and normally that's kind of a safe space because like you say it's kind of mm. educational it's historical it draws your attention to stuff that you maybe didn't know about the first time around and I was watching the episode um, with Lauren Mountbatten getting into his boat and I was like hang, hang on a second <laughs> Yes. Something bad's going to happen. Yes, don't get into the boat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I wanted to switch it off. I was like, this is not why I watched The Crown. <laughs> People, there's also types of music that I like because I like the, I like that they're there. Like I like, I like Tom Waits. Mm -hmm. I like that he's there. Now I'll occasionally listen to him, but it, but you carry on, Tom, mm, but mm. I won't listen to much. Yeah. Uh, I know what you mean. Yeah, because it's just a bit, and mm. you know, we're all in the smoky bar dying mm. of alcoholism. Oh, and the other one, I have a friend who's a very, very good singer and musician, Ian Shaw. Oh, I love Ian. He's oh, a he's colleague of mine at Jazz FM. Is he? He's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. and the best fun, isn't he? Yeah, he's such and a great guy. I met him because I was doing support on tour with Rory Bremner, oh. and so was Ian because they were at university together and um and Ian and I just really got on and he's I mean he's great you, mm -hmm. you know you know him so you know how talented he is and he was doing um a lot of Joni Mitchell stuff mm -hmm. and he goes do you like Joni Mitchell and I was going oh yeah 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 and then I thought oh actually 
<laughs> I like the idea of her yeah. and I respect her and well done you, Joni, and aren't you very talented and wonderful, but it's really not for me. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. and there's not anything in it that gets me in the guts. I'm always the one for things that get me in the guts. That's why I like that certain sound of a guitar. Yeah, and so, so. you're a rocker, Lisa. You're a rocker deep down, aren't you? You've got that rock and roll deep spirit. Deep down, I have that. But there can be other kind of music that has that spirit. That's you know, like that's why mm. I like rap and hip hop, and I like disco. Things that have a bit of spirit in them. Uh, and then other things that will come along and I'll go, like I remember in the streets, and I went, oh, I really like this mm. guy. What is this? You know, because I thought it had a truth in it. Yeah, also, that's, he's, that's it's not thing, boring, it? is it either? Mm. But um, mm. I do. I was once asked, it was, it's a good idea for a podcast, it was, and you had to review an album that you've never listened to. Mm. Ah. And they gave, and they, you, so you send them a list of people you don't really like. For me, top of my list, probably Pink Floyd. And um, and they sent me the 1984 Animals album. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! <laughs> what a, it's load a cheery of bit shit. of work. <laughs> was that your review? Oh my God! Because I didn't know who it was, and I I was and they go, "What kind of people do you think it is?" And I said, "Well, I think they're 22, and their parents are rich. They've all been to public school. I really wish they'd stop this. It's horrendous." <laughs> and uh, and they did it quite late on, and they thought it was like a you know, rock opera and everything. So. You know, there's certain things definitely not for me that other people would would think are fabulous. The idea yeah. of, of writing a rock opera about animals is just is completely a million miles away from, you know, some psychobilly band bashing out. Um... And it's so pompous, and it's yes. so not yeah. about to me, not about relating to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think that's that that and that's sort of an indefinable thing, and it's in different performers. Like I think Dolly Parton has it, whatever she's doing, mm. she has that thing and she's massively talented, but she, people relate to her. And I know people say the same thing about Kylie, but they're wrong. But you know what I mean? People go, oh, I really relate to her. And I go, yeah, but you're an idiot. And that's not good music. But Dolly is good music. Mm. And it's, it's indefinable. You know, people go, well, how could you say that's good? And this is, you know, and you go, well. And Madonna, or much as I've danced to her, I don't think any of it's good. Mm. But... I do, you know, I've thoroughly enjoyed my time dancing to Madonna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's markedly different, isn't it? Because it's, yeah, Dolly has something that's just it's quintessentially relatable and authentic. Yeah. Whereas when you have like Pink Floyd make the 1980s yeah. concept album, it's more like, <laughs> look at what we've made. Yeah. yeah. Behold. It's being openly clever. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and there's sort of no suffering in it either. Like, I, you know, you mm. know Dolly comes... You know, there's been yeah. poverty, there's been suffering. There's sometimes you go, people need a bit of suffering to make good, happy music. Mm. Mm. Grit and truth. That's, what, that's yeah. what makes things work, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, it has been fabulous talking to you today. I've really enjoyed that and, and brilliant choices and really getting the the phonographic memories briefed down because you've, you're, you're talking about um, recent times, but, you know, genuine moments where you've connected with a bit of music and it's 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 done something to your brain and made you feel good. So mm. thank you so much for sharing. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. No, I've loved it. <laughs> so are you, um, are you carrying on gigging online then? Uh, have you got yes. plans to come out into the real world or are you going to stay in your, in your room locked away? I'll come out <laughs> as soon as they let me. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I'm Zooming all, all the time. There's uh, Zoom gigs. I'm doing one 
this weekend actually in Edinburgh, which is a halfway house sort of thing because we film it in the Stand Comedy Club. So I get to mm. go out Excellent. and see some other comics, but there's no audience there. They stream it and you just hope that the other comics laugh loudly <laughs> at your stuff. <laughs> uh, so doing that. And I'm also I'm filming a streaming thing Ooh. as well, which involves me going to London, which is very exciting to mm. go to London and slightly... To be honest, slightly, oh, I don't know if I want to. People are booking things for May for outside mm. distanced shows. Um, but in Scotland, I was we haven't May had outside any outside in Scotland. gigs. <laughs> we really haven't. Like even last summer, which was one of the best summers, there was just no outside gigs happening. No. Because by the time it's the evening, you know, as my mother-in-law would say, well, that's when you need your cardi. So no, you yeah. know, they just don't happen. Yeah, it's oh, too cold. Nice. I would wear a cardi to come out yeah. and see you. Absolutely. <laughs> to do live comedy, 100%. I'll wear two if I have to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely brilliant. I wish you all the best with all of that. And thank you so much for coming on What Goes Around show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Original Rude Girl Scout. Grab your partners and make over to the Scout. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of What Goes Around. There'll be another one coming along any minute with the fabulous Adele Berté, who uh, is an amazing woman who sang backing vocals for Thomas Dolby, was in the band The Bloods. She's written books about La Belle and a wonderful memoir which really gets your brain thinking. And she is such an interesting, honest and brilliant guest that I think you're going to enjoy it. But you could always do something for us, you know. You could like us. You could subscribe to our show. You'd enjoy it. We'd be nice to you. We'd usher you into our family. And if you gave us a review, wow. If it was on Apple Podcasts, wow, wow, wow. Because then the gods of the algorithms will speak kindly to us and elevate our presence in the world of the internet. Please, if you can, give us a little review on Apple Podcasts. That would really make our day. And if you can't, just tell your friends that What Goes Around is the bestest show around. Around to the original root girl sound, to the original root girl.